Welcome to the Deep Print Movies Podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of Deep Print Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by the king of Long Island, Hal Hartley. Hal is one of the great American independent filmmakers who's been making personal films truly his own since the late 80s. He is back with a new novel, Our Lady of the Highway, self-published, and it was great to speak to him. I've been a fan of his work since I got into indie movies in the early 90s. And he's been on the wish list of filmmakers I've been desperate to speak to. So this is me and Hal Hartley talking for one hour. Thanks for taking the time to talk. Not at all. Thanks for talking to me. <laughs> How's things with you? How's the heat in, I'm guessing you're in New York. Yes, this is New York City. It's pretty hot. I don't think it's as bad as London right now. I'm hearing some some of my friends over there are telling me it's really... Oh, it's crazy. It's end of times heat over here. Yeah, yeah. I was in New York at Metrograph in 2020, just before the pandemic, so... Your movies were the last movies I saw in a cinema for a few years until things started opening up again. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was that was an exciting time to be going downtown to see the, the films like that with new audiences, generally. But uh, then there was just this weird, you know, feeling that everything was going to shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, I bought a ton of Criterions whilst I was in... America, so I had like a year's worth of viewing to yeah keep me yeah. occupied inside my house. They do such a good job with their products. When I was going back for your movies and reading your book, I'd noticed nuns pop up quite a lot in your work. They're reoccurring themes. Yes, they are. What um, is it that makes you keep coming back to them? Well, there's just normal life stuff like I was educated by nuns as a kid uh, at our parish you know school um, you know so they were always um, kind of fascinating and terrifying <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> uh, sometimes they were they were really lovely uh, nuns too um, so yeah that's all a part of even though I'm not a practicing Catholic or anything like that there's so much of my concept of how the world operates and what's good and what's bad and you know how people take advantage of each other in certain ways uh, is still kind of filtered through this you know catholic filter i guess so there's that but also as i became you know an adult in my late 20s early 30s i i became really interested for historic and kind of geopolitical reasons it, meaning subject, um, I, I started investigating religious people 
uh, and their conflicts with civil authority. Mm -hmm. um, and they, for me, they were the most far out kind of people, you know, these Protestant Americans who liked to, uh, it all started with the events at Waco, Texas. Do you remember that? Yeah, David Koresh. Yeah, the, the David yeah. Koresh thing. So I really felt uh, at that time, I was about 30, I really wanted to investigate this because it had been, you know, it had been in my head all through my adolescence to this kind of freedom of religion on the one hand and mm -hmm. in America, uh, the right to own a lot of weapons. <laughs> yeah. And so this was the, and so I really got into, and I had never heard of any of this type of religion, you know, this end time millennialist apocryphal type religion. Um, and so I really began reading about it for years. And I wrote my play soon about those events at Waco, Texas um, and performed that around the world. And then, but I still kept at it because it was always there. And of course I had written amateur mm -hmm. already. Uh, and I think that had begun from my reading about religious mystics, um, which grew out of that whole, well, it coincided with the interest in the uh, American style, Protestant, millennialist kind of thing. Uh, at, at the same time, I had become interested in just these, from the Middle Ages on, you know, these people who, uh, aesthetics, I think, is what you call them. I mean, they just yeah. they do without, you know, everything. So I was interested in those kinds of people. So uh, nuns, like I said, because it was figured as part of my childhood, uh, was kind of easy for me to imagine them and the kind of problems they would have. Because that's really what interests me about nuns in this book, for instance, and the way I use it in amateur, uh, is the conflict in the individual. You know, they want to transcend somehow. They want a greater, piece of reality and um but to keep coming the kinds of practical conflicts they they meet civil personal interpersonal and where did you get the idea for the brewery it was almost like the hipster version of water into wine almost i found that was really yeah, I, I think I was playing around with that. I was looking, you know, this was originally written as a TV series. So uh, I, I was trying to do my best <laughs> to be entertaining and, and plausible in the marketplace. So uh, yeah, I didn't, yeah. So I was reaching for story elements that would um, speak to contemporary audiences. You know. um, also, I had spent time, I lived for five years in Germany in the early 2000s. Uh, and one of uh, the things I like to do a lot was to go to this Augustinian monastery where they made this excellent beer. <laughs> and um, so that was in my noggin, this idea that, I mean, there are plenty of convents around the world, you know, where the nuns uh, in there do something, you know, they make soap or they, they make clothes or whatever. You know, they do things to help support themselves. Uh, and so I thought beer would be hilarious. I'd place it in Brooklyn. 
when I kind of came up with this in 2014, 15, 16, um, Williamsburg, Brooklyn was really at the height of it, what they called hipster, mm-hmm. the hipster renaissance or something. I even had to ask some of my younger friends, like, what actually constitutes a hipster? <laughs> That's is a, funny. Is a hipster the same as a millennial? <laughs> or is it, um, and I was surprised at how vehement my younger friends got in their discussions of what actually constituted a hipster. Um, anyway, so there was that. Uh, and those are the things I like um, a lot. I think this sounds very silly, but I like women. I like beer. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I like spiritual types, you know, who are striving to, uh, you know, define for themselves, you know, a workable spiritual grounding. So I just brought all these things together. And I like making fun of the powerful and greedy. That's always fun. And you novelized the script as almost a marketing tool to try and get the series of this financed. Is that right? Yeah. At first I did. I did. Um, I don't, this just goes to show how little I really know about how to make mainstream entertainment. Because <laughs> I, thought, I thought everybody would like think that was so cool. Like, it, like the book would be a help. You know, like it would be more fun to read than the script, which is often very technical and stuff like that. Um, of course, no one, no one was interested. It didn't do anything. But um, also that experience of going around to all these different corporations and pitching the show uh, live in the room with mm-hmm. a lot of executives and stuff with my managers kind of coaching me in the morning and then sending me out in the afternoon to do this. Uh, yeah, I had spoken the story so much that it was kind of this easy step to, to just go a little bit further and just write it down as a told story rather than a uh, dramatized story. And so I had done, I, you know, I made like 10 or 15 copies of the book of it when I was pitching. Um, but then a couple of years later, the, the, the TV series, the pilot at least, was optioned for a while. So I made some money off of that. But then it amounted to nothing. They, they didn't do anything. So I had the, the, the whole story. So I, it was the first time I just gave myself that kind of a project. So just turn it into prose. I mean, I read all the time and I write prose every day in my life. Um, so, but I had never put that energy and curiosity towards actually making a novel. So since the plot was already there and the characters were already there, it was really, you know, so I spent like two and a half years working on it as, you know, perfecting my sentences and rethinking how scenes could, could play out, you know, Mm -hmm. I could change the order of scenes and stuff like that. But I found it was quite fun to, as a reading experience, it was quite fun to have, uh, to keep this sequence that the scenes had come in and that would, would repeat, scenes would repeat from a different perspective, uh, which is something I think you see in movies these days and TV. You know, it's not as far out as it was 20 years ago. 
And you wanted to this to be a TV series, not a movie. What made you think of it more as a series? Oh, well, I guess, you know, in the early, uh, you know, 2010, 2011, from then on, I, I saw that the real um, way to make a living as a filmmaker in this world is, is not in feature films, but television programming. So whether I was right about that or not, I don't know. But um, that seemed to be where all the excitement was and where all the money was, you know, where people had money to spend on original programming. And how was your experience on Red Rocks directing? How is it working with someone else's material? That was really great. That was the best job I've ever had. <laughs> um, yeah, because one thing, it's great not to be the boss, really. Um, I, I like the scripts that these guys had written. In certain places, they were very frank about it. That, you know, they were copying some of the kinds of scenes I had made in the 90s. Um, so that was all good. Um, I trusted them and they trusted me. Um, so it was a really good experience. And really, after I finished the very first episode, after the, the company saw it, they approached me and they asked me if I had TV show ideas. And I said, oh, I have plenty. Uh, and in fact, I, I gave them our lady the highlight and they optioned it. That was funny. I spoke to the director, Ty West, who pretty much gave up on indie filmmaking for many years and became a gun for hire on TV. And when he came back to movies, everyone was saying, oh my God, what is it like being out in the wilderness, not having a film? And he said, it was great. I, <laughs> it, it wasn't my baby. So I wasn't that emotionally invested and, you know, going crazy every day. Mm -hmm. And if it, if it rains, all right, well, we work around it and we shoot tomorrow. I'm not stressing out about my budget and my, what I have to shoot and stuff. And I'm just one section of the series. So it's not that deep and it's not that personal, but yeah, he had a great time. And yeah. And it frees you up to do good work. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how I've said this a million times in interviews in my career that, you know, I always, there's parts of my work where I'm like, that could have been done better if I wasn't so worried about the money and the schedule and the cops, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, if I didn't have to hustle so hard, just yeah. to get the days shooting done, I could have directed better. Um, and so that was really a nice experience on Red Oaks, just to have this top flight crew and, you know, the requisite amount of money. Going back to what you said, how the hell have you had this long a career without having to pitch something? And how, how have you been finding investment for all these years? I'm not saying it was easy, but I'm just curious as to how you've gone this long into your career without having to yeah. have those horrible corporate meetings. I know. I know. I, I wonder about it too. Um, well, one thing, I think my aspirations are different than a lot of, I have friends who started out at the same time as me, but you know, they didn't really have their own particular vision of filmmaking. They loved making films and, and they um, were good at it, uh, but they didn't have anything in particular um, they needed to say. And so they, they became very successful. Um, like you said, guns for hire for corporations that were making TV or movies or whatever. And they did quite well. But I kind of started out at the beginning with 
a particular vision of the world and the feeling about the world that I wanted to express. And um, yeah, that's that particular feeling is not terribly popular all the time. Some of the times it reaches a kind of popularity if a certain amount of money is put into the advertising of it. But um, yeah, I had different kinds of aims and uh, I like making money. I do like making money <laughs> when I can. Um, but not at the cost of doing work that I, I can't answer for. Mm -hmm. Was it on Unbelievable Truth? Did I read right that your boss cut you a check? Was that right? Yes, I was working. Uh, Jerry Brownstein is great to your friend of mine now. Uh, he was my boss uh, and he had a pretty good business going um, producing informational videotapes for industry and government. Uh, and it was really boring, but it was lucrative and he knew how to do it. And, uh, and I was pretty much his right-hand man. I, I ran the office and uh, I, I did budgets for him and I got on the phone and made deals with subcontractors and all this stuff. It was like almost like working in the department store or something. Um, but I, it was a great job for me. I was in my 20s, mid-20s. Uh, it was a good job for me because I was writing all the time and I was making these short films. Uh, kid, photographer's girlfriend, dogs, movies. And, you know, and Jerry, who's not a very uh, active he, he doesn't go out to see art a lot mm -hmm. to know what art films were. Um, but he got excited about me and my friends because they were all hanging around the office <laughs> because I had a regular job you know, in an office in midtown Manhattan. So they were all freelancing. It was one thing or another. And so the, he really just liked the excitement he, he saw around us. And then one Day I was going to make something that was probably Simple Men, but a shorter version of it. Mm -hmm. And I was going to take a loan out from the bank, actually, uh, to make this 16 millimeter short film. And uh, I asked him to co-sign my loan. And he said, what are you going to do? And I told him. And then he suggested that I just... He really, he was not an artist kind of guy. He said, can you make a bonafide commercial product? <laughs> and I said, what, you mean like a feature film in 35 millimeter? He's like, yeah. And I said, well, yeah, probably. Totally lying. <laughs> I had no sure. So he said, well, look, go do a budget for that, for a story you can make in 35 millimeter, 90 minutes, and we'll see what we can do. <laughs> so I did, and I made this budget, which we stuck to. It was only $60,000. And uh, Jerry put up 50 of that. And then we raised another 10 from a, a friend, another friend of ours who was a small time businessman. And that's how it came together. Amazing. What did you think of the finished film? What did I think of it? No, your investor, your boss. Oh, my, Jerry, he was yeah. ecstatic. Oh, amazing. He, was, he loved it. And he, you know, he just, and from then on, I mean, he ran my, my whole business until he retired in uh, about 1998. So for 10 years, we had a really 
great time. I was working constantly making films nonstop for 10 years. He was running his own business and then running my business and then an editing facility that spun out of my business. And, you know, he had a time of his life, really. That's so sweet. That's such a good story. Yeah. You said something really interesting, which is great advice for starting out, but you said for Unbelievable Truth, you recommend people to shoot locally in locations that they have access to and that environment you'll be more comfortable in and just work better than trying to steal a scene in Times Square or something more kind of intense like that. Yeah, that's what that's what uh, made me switch from the simple man idea to the unbelievable truth idea because simple man was in one way or the other a road film it was moving you'd have to move from one place to the other and i had made enough short films by that point and worked on other people's films to understand that the thing you had to cut down on was moving company moves so i wrote something that could be shot on the street i grew up on really Mm -hmm neighborhood there and I had a big family who would you know they'd complain a lot but they'd give me (laughs) (laughs) I email Michael Imperioli every once in a while because I'm obsessed with the Sopranos and I was asking him about working with you and he said you're great and very specific and then I was going back for your films and I was wondering where this style of performance and your dialogue delivery was born out of and I kind of I don't know how to describe what was a heightened deadpan style of delivery but I was wondering how you came onto that tone which is across all your films I don't it started when I was in film school I know that um and I never called it deadpan uh and actually by the time I started to get a little bit well known uh, like when I started to work with Michael, for instance, uh, you know, he's a sensitive and alert actor. And he had he- heard all this deadpan stuff from journalism stuff, you know. Um, right. But, you know, he was reading the script and, and he said, yeah, it's, this doesn't really seem deadpan. And I'm like, right, it doesn't. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> there's room there for expression. It's just the expression needs to be specific. Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, and so I was always looking for physical activity that accompanies the, the delivery of the dialogue. Uh, you know, where you pick up an object, where, where you're looking, stuff like that. And um, I don't have a lot of conversational factors even now about, you know, the inner workings of their soul, and their heart and mind. You know, if it's not clear if it's not clear in what I've written, then there is something wrong. We have a discussion about like what this actually means. Um, and that gets solved pretty much before we get on set. I always like to do table reads and, and, and meet with uh, actors individually to just you know, go through line by line and say, you know, what does this actually mean? For instance, 
is he being ironic here or, or is this an actual answer to the question? Um, that comes up a lot because as I know, he's actually answering the question. Nevertheless, it is ironic, but it's not your job to be ironic. Right. That kind, that kind of thing. And I was wondering how long did it take for people to understand your voice? Because your films are specifically your own. I recognize your style of filmmaking and the tone and the music and the performances right away. So I was always curious of directors who have that very singular vision, how long it takes for people to understand what, what you were going for. I, I don't know. I mean, it is always, it's always changing. I mean, uh, before, when I brought my first film out, People said it's one thing, uh, yes, um, and and say they weren't excited about it. But then it got distributed and got some good reviews, and suddenly they they liked it. And then uh, the next film, they read the script and you know trust, and they're like it's too much like the previous film. And uh, and then I made it, and then they said it's not enough like the previous film. And so, and that goes on all the way, you know, through the career, 30, 34 years of the same thing. Uh, people, I think, rush, they try to rush too much to define something. Um, I like when we do, th this was great about the Metrograph, uh, that they, they jumbled the films up a little. Like, they show the unbelievable truth with like Meanwhile, where they show trust and no such thing. You know, which is an interesting combination. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and I think you can see a consistency when you do that. You can see a consistency of approach, even the genres are changing, and you know, production quality changes. But you can see the the consistency of the voice. For sure, yeah. Primarily, I'm a film programmer, but when I started out, I was doing freelance journalism, and I was spoke to Chloe Sauvignier in 2016 and at the end of the interview we were just talking about what we'd been watching and at the time I had said I'd gone down this big 90s indie movie binge and she said she had two she just found a bunch of old DVDs and I haven't actually got out of that binge ever since I have a very romantic memory of discovering your movies John Moosh, Alexander Rockwell, Terry Zweigoff yeah, and I was just wondering, what what is it like being a part of that beautiful scene at the time? Did it feel special, or um, did you know something was really happening at the time, or not really? Because you're too in it. Yeah, I was just so I was so happy to be working, and I did realize people told me, and I, and I knew it anyway, that my uh, my expectations of my creative professional life were kind of challenging, yeah. you know, different kinds of, I mean, even Jim Jarmusch, you know, he would say like, you know, what, however you say it, you know, you're like, you make things harder for yourself <laughs> because you insist on, uh, you insist on things um, that uh, aren't really commercial concerns um although i'm not trying to be obscure but like i said before I, I did know that there was something about the world many things about the world i had deep feelings about and that's what i wanted to make my films about mm -hmm. 
Um, and I wouldn't compromise on certain things. I compromised on plenty of things, I still do casting sometimes or the budget, that's the easiest thing. You know, a lot of people think, like Simple Man was that way. Uh, all these uh, mostly English and uh, European based producers were saying like, well, we understand that you're a little bit of a, a viable product at the moment <laughs> and we want to get in on that business, but your script, although it's nice, it's, we don't really think of it as being, and it's going to be a big hit. And we were talking about, I don't know, $3 million or something. Mm -hmm. but would you still have those concerns if we were talking about $2 million? <laughs> and they're like, no. Not at all. <laughs> so I said, great, let's make the film for $2 million and call it a day. That's funny, Jim offering that advice because he seems such a specific director himself in his. Oh, he is very, very. Um, he wasn't um, trying to correct my ways or anything. Right. He, he was just, it was a kind of admiring about it. And he knew that he was very specific and he was very. Uh, wouldn't compromise on certain kind of things either, but he had been dealt to, he, somehow his films fit more comfortably into something a little bit more commercial. I mean, he mm -hmm. always did make a point of putting uh, celebrities in where he could. And it took me a while to kind of follow his example on that. Oh, that, yeah, that's right. He's always got kind of um, indie cult icons peppered in with cameras yeah. and stuff. Yeah, no, he, he was smart about that kind of thing. And, you know, his choices are interesting. But, you know, after his first film, uh, to bring Tom Waits in for Down by Law, mm -hmm. that was an interesting decision. And no one knew Benini at that time, not in the States anyway, but that was a real coup. On going to your website, I love that essays have different language options uniform packaging the music the books the films you have ownership over everything you do you publish yep. your own screenplays your soundtracks your blu-ray box that's released by yourself yeah that's incredible when did you did you know early on you just wanted to retain control no not early on it, i think it was it really began when i moved back to the united states in 2008 2009 i think you know, the, the business was different. Um, technology had changed it and uh, also, you know, tastes changed and stuff. But, you know, the, the, the business I had thrived in in the 1990s really no longer existed. And it was only then I began to uh, also receive my films back because uh, licenses expired and, uh, Companies went out of business and disappeared, and there was nobody taking care of some of these films. So, you know, I did what was required to to get those rights. And it was slow and boring office work, you know, desk work for a couple of years. Um, and then, um, and also, uh, it was no point in licensing films anymore to it uh, because there was no money in that. And I was always, they never pay you enough, and and. I didn't like the way they would package the work anyway. So I began uh, 
thinking about this and I was pretty conversant about how the internet works and all that internet commerce. And, all. and then I just started thinking like a gallerist, I guess, a gallerist or a museum curator. <laughs> I'm just going to invent the Hal Hartley Memorial Institution. <laughs> um, and, you know, we'll just everything will be here. And uh, if people want that thing here. So, you know, it's a, no one's getting wealthy here, but it is sustainable. I mean, it's a business on its own, which my associate Chris McChain sort of uh, operates on a day-by-day -day basis. You know, whether we're selling directly from halhartley.com and Elboro Press or through Amazon and other online stores. Uh, it's Amazon mostly for the sure. rest of the world. Uh, yeah, and so it works and it's a good, uh, and that led to this thing of uh, making it multilingual. That's what made it plausible. If I were just making these box sets in English or with English with French subtitles, that wouldn't really do it. We needed to go uh, roll up our sleeves and really just say, oh, well, what are the languages that have traditionally been my big territories? And that's Japan and Germany and France, the English languages and Spanish, because here in the United States, Spanish is really the principal language after a while. Um, so that made it really uh, doable. You couldn't like think about just one territory or one language. We had to to a globally. Uh, of course, we've left out plenty of people, like you know, the Scandinavian countries and stuff, but uh, we don't get a lot of, you know, complaining about that. I mean, most of the Scandinavian people will, will watch it in English. And, mm -hmm. like that. Um, and then it, the follow through of that would be meaning like if we put an essay in the box set, then we want to translate that into all the languages as well and have the, the website be the place where people can find those. So it's, yeah, well, hopefully it's a resource. I mean, I can't be making films forever. <laughs> so um, people will, will need to access these things. Um, so we're there, that's where, that's where we're at now. Is there any way for you to regain control of No Such Thing? I know that was a studio deal. Yeah, no, no, I can't. Uh, I tried again and again. Uh, I was hoping to to convince them to do what we did with Faye Grimm, uh, Magnolia Pictures, mm -hmm. owned that completely. I don't, I don't own that. And but it took me a decade to convince Magnolia to do the sensible thing and uh, just allow me to do business with the film, and then I'll give you the money you're due. You know? uh, because I didn't do any business with that film for like a decade. Um, I don't even think they knew they had it in their catalog. And I pointed it out to them, they found it. And, you know, some corporate middle person was saying like, no, that's against company policy. We don't do that. <laughs> like you insist on not making money off of one of your products, even though I'm sure I can make you money. And I do, I, I send Magnolia money every quarter for the past five years. How was it with Francis Ford Coppola? That was a zero trope picture. 
That was, um, yeah. Uh, I didn't really deal too much with Francis. At first, you know, we had some conversations and he was excited about the script. And then he um, went off to do his other things. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, it was a corporation. I hate working with corporations. And that was like the nightmare corporation uh, because they kept changing. You know, I, Francis introduced me to three or four executives and I'm talking mm -hmm. with them. Uh, and of course, they're too busy ever to read the script. So, you know, they start seeing these dailies and they're like, what is this? It's like an art film or something. And, <laughs> and uh, but, you know, I could talk to them, you know, for a couple of weeks. I would yeah. be talking with them and, and then they'd get it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. So it's kind of a, an indie art film, monster film. <laughs> okay. And then they'd all get fired and new people would be brought in. And I'd have to go through this all over again uh, until I just, and that happened like three times during the course of making that film. Uh, so I just stopped talking to them. I just did what I wanted. And, you know, they said, you're arrogant and you're difficult. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> You've been really effective using Kickstarter to fund features and to restore and release your box sets. Yeah. Now, that was part and parcel of the whole idea of creating this, you know, website where everything was there. Um, because it seemed like a way to pre-sell product without uh, risking too much of my own yeah. money, you know. I, you, could, you know, the first time was spooky because I didn't know it so much about it. And uh, that was with Meanwhile. It was com comparatively small. It was like, we went out for $40,000 to make the Blu-rays. Uh, but we raised like 60, over 60. Um, and that all worked out. And that gave me confidence to try to raise money for a new film. So about a year and a half later, we did the Kickstarter for Net Rifle. And that, I would say, is probably the hardest thing I ever did. <laughs> um, I'm not that social. Right. What did you have to do? Just we constant just... interaction with fans and prospective backers and, um, you know, just advertising. Right. you got to go online. You've got to be in the public eye you know, for 30 days, like every day. And uh, that was really hard, uh, but it was a success. And uh, and it was really terrific. I was able to make the film exactly the way I wanted to make it. And I, you know, I didn't have to share income with anyone except the actors and crew. Um, and it really, since we raised so much, like almost uh, $400,000, it, we really solidified the fan base all over the world. Uh, they all came out and they all stayed. Whenever we do a new one now, the names are, are the same. Wow. Who are they? Are they fans? Are they yeah, I mean, people? Just, or? just regular people. I mean, I'm talking about people, you know, just put in $50, you know, for, for the box set. You know, yeah. Not, in that particular 
uh, thing, the Kickstarter uh, crowdsourcing uh, thing. You can uh, you can't put in more than ten thousand dollars, and then right. you know, so there are yeah, you know, you raise three hundred thousand dollars. You know, there's sometimes 15, 20 people who put in $10,000. Um, but for the vast majority are people putting in $100, $50, $150, you know. Uh, there's a trickle of people who are fans who want the box set, you know, or, and the CD or the book, all of that. They're just regular, which is, I mean, that's gratifying. It's great to have these friends and fans who are, you know, more, financially well off and mm-hmm. happy to do this. I mean, I really appreciate these people. But it's also gratifying to them as well as for me that the vast majority are just regular customers. When I was rewatching your movies, I was loving all the music and I was trying to find out find out for the longest time who this dude Ned Rifle is. <laughs> and then I was like, is it someone from Yoli Tango? It kind of sounds like Slow Dive or Galaxy Five Hundred. Then mm-hmm. Wikipedia just told me it's you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Ned Rifle was the, the character I used all the time uh, in my writing classes that SUNY purchased. Uh, we had to write so many. That was the great thing of that particular education was that we had to, to write a lot. So almost every couple of days we had to do another two or three page dialogue. Uh, they're exercises, you know. So nobody took them too uh, personally. Or, uh, so I, I used to kind of crack up my classmates with <laughs> this recurring character, Ned. You know, also Henry Fool was a recurring character. Yeah, these are great names. Yeah, yeah, I always like that about plays and books. You know, the names of characters. Do you play out live or are you strictly a studio guy? Uh, just strictly studio. Yeah. And very rarely live, even in the studio. Um, the past couple of albums, I've played guitar, uh, electric guitar live. Um, but it's real bits and pieces. This is funny because I was talking to the cinematographer, Sean Price Williams, who's a big music geek and we talk about music probably more than we do movies and he said every musician i know one wants to be a filmmaker and every director i know wants to be a in a band yeah that's kind of true usually if you're into good music you're into good movies as well they kind of go just the yeah. art goes hand in hand but it's also i think from the filmmaker point of view it's it's um Filmmaking is so involves so many people in this technical. You, you want to make something really live and fresh, you know, but that takes weeks of preparation, you know, to to do that. Uh, and so, I don't think I'm very different than a lot of other people, my generation at least. But you know, there's the, the the excitement of the simplest song, just. Mm-hmm one person singing with a guitar. You know, it's like, wow, it's so direct. <laughs> I wish filmmaking could be like that. Was the, did the composing come out of necessity or is, or I'm wondering, is this part of you just wanting to carve every 
aspect of uh, film? No, it was it was of necessity. Um, two, uh, once uh, I was making very low budget films, the unbelievable truth in Charleston, you know, and yeah, I just couldn't afford music. You know, it's the kind of music I, I, so I did know something about music and I had been playing, making music since I was a teenager. So I just knuckled down and, you know, got a little bit better. <laughs> The first film, I didn't. I, I kind of made the chords, but I didn't play them. I had my friend Philip Reed come in, who was an excellent electric guitarist. And he just came into the cutting room with me. We plugged his guitar into an amp and plugged the amp into the recorder and uh, did it live like that. And I showed him the chords I would do, and then he would improvise around them. A bit of that is on the uh, the original recordings are on uh, Walking Into Limitless. But then as the films went on, I got better and better. And uh, I started working with the music producer, Jeff Taylor. And we wrote some music together as well. Um, and by then, yeah, I felt comfortable uh, doing it. I mean, I'd still buy music from other people. Yola Tango is a good example, or a lot of people in the, for the film amateur. But um, but by the time I was making Simple Man and, and Amateur and Flirt, yeah, I understood that the kind of filmmaking I was making was reaching for a concert of the elements, you know, the dialogue, the physical activity, mm -hmm. the sound design, the music. You know, it all, it all wanted to fit together. Uh, it wanted to be composed, like all of it, you know, the, the image sound recording, the dialogue, the music, the lighting, you know, it, I was trying to compose something. Uh, you did an amazing video for, from a Motel 6, which I, I distinctly remember. Oh yeah. That blew my mind when I was, when I was in college in my early twenties and I was listening to lots of Matador records and Drag City and discovering mm -hmm. indie movies that all kind of really came together in a beautiful way. And I remember, I remember being so mind blown by the fact for the first two minutes of the video, for those who haven't seen it, it's the band coming to the practice space. They take out the guitar from the case. He attaches the tremolo arm, plugs in the amps, plugs in the pedals. They're setting up the drums. And then I think it's almost two minutes into it. They burst into action for the guitar freak out for 30 seconds and then just unpack everything. Yeah. Fantastic. I'd never seen a music video like that. It totally opened my mind to what, mm -hmm. you know, a, a air quotes rock video should or should be or can be. Yeah. I didn't even think things like that were possible just to have it all build up for that yeah. 30 second moment. I, I was always, you know, I'm of the generation where MTV began, right? You know, we were. I guess it's the late seventies, early eighties, whatever. Um, and then we started getting all these music videos, you know, to look at and on TV. And I was bored out of my mind with all this stuff, uh, just lip syncing. I just thought mm -hmm. it was the stupidest thing imaginable. And um, and so I always look for opportunities to avoid lip syncing. Yeah, <laughs> and I think in most of my 
the videos I've done. I've done like four or five videos, but that pretty much is always where we start. So how, what can we do without lip sync? And it just makes you think in a different way and makes a band think in a different way about how they want to present themselves and stuff. And in that case with Ira, he lip synced with the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But there were examples of different things. I just paid close attention to David Burns videos uh, that he would do, uh, which were not necessarily always rock videos, but you would make video art as well. Uh, and in some way, he'd always like deconstruct the expectations of what, what's expected here. It's supposed to be a singer out there just pretending to be singing. Do you remember that Pixies video where it was them walking down like a mountainside and they just slowed the video down to frame by frame by frame? I don't remember that. And stretched it. They stretched it out for three minutes and MTV were like, this is the most boring video ever and we refused to play it. Right. Because nothing happened. They just literally took a 30 second clip and stretched it out. You know, Jean-Luc Godard did that with, uh, the opposite way with... Um, becoming attractions for film socialisme. He put the entire film sped up. Right. So that it was only a minute and a half long. So it's just this kind of visual art thing. <laughs> Amazing. Digitizing stuff. But it's going to start raining here really hard. Right. And I have to run across the room and close the windows. <laughs> okay, sure, go ahead. Okay. Okay, I'm back. I was listening to a podcast with the singer of the grunge band Bush, who I was interested in when I was a teenager because they were hailed as the English Nirvana. Uh -huh. And he, he was reminiscing about the grunge days. And he said, man, looking back, the amount of money we blew on music videos for MTV with just the hope of it being on air was just a completely crazy concept now looking at music budgets and things like that that you're under no guarantee even if i spend half a million on this video and bring in this hot video director we're not guaranteed any airtime we're just really at your mercy to and hope that it's going to be on 120 minutes and right get people's attention or it might just be on at five in the morning and yeah. there's no contract there's nothing I, i've got no promises from you on anything about this i'm just gonna throw half a million at it and hope for the best. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I never really understood it. It's crazy. I only did it for friends, really. Uh, if I got to know some musicians, they would, you know, Polly RV, you know, what's that, uh, everything but the girl, you know, Ben Watt, Tracy Thorne. I mean, I didn't know these people at all. <laughs> they just mm -hmm. kind of went through my life at one point and, you know, Ben suggested uh, that he was going to do a, video uh, a cover of uh, Simon and Garfunkel song uh, in New York so he asked me if I would do it it was fun do you have a film that you're most fond of from your catalog uh that's hard bits and pieces of each other <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I, I think I have to do a mashup um 
I am looking forward, uh, I'm in discussions right now with um, a company, a producing company that wants to make my uh, film, Where to Land, which I had done a Kickstarter for a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic. Uh, and I was going to make that for like half a million dollars. Uh, but then the pandemic came along and I couldn't do that. So I gave everybody back their money. Is and this I, the one sat on a boat or have I got my facts wrong? Uh, no, it's not sat on a boat. It's uh, <laughs> here in New York City. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so now there's interest. Uh, there's, you know, a viable production company that's interested in, you know, putting up you know, a nice size budget for it. So, uh, and that one I'm really anxious to make because I think it's the best script I've written. Uh, wow. It's, uh, shares a lot of things with earlier films, particularly some of my ones in the nineties, the unbelievable truth going right back to the beginning, which is, you know, like very obviously trying to be a farce, you know, in the, French way of doing it, um, Moliere. Uh, and I think, you know, now with a, a much more mature voice and uh, command of elements, um, I think I managed, and it took a real long time. I wasn't in a rush to make another film. I took my time writing it, came back to it over the course of a year, really let it gestate. and. Uh, it's very meaningful to me, but I also think it's really well-crafted farce uh, and that's meaningful today and will remain meaningful uh, and relevant. You know? So uh, I, once the pandemic came along, I just couldn't uh, fathom making another movie under these kind of circumstances with so little money. Yeah, I just published it as a book because I, I think it's a good read as well. But now out of the blue comes this producer who's interested in it. So I'm hoping that will be the next one. I'll be meeting on Tuesday with him. And finally, is there any directors currently working that whose films you enjoy? Do you watch a lot of new films? Do you keep up to speed? I don't, sorry to say. Uh, uh, I spend a lot more time reading uh, and yeah, I, I just don't. And particularly since the pandemic too. It's just been, um, I don't get around too much. And what do you read? Do you read fiction or nonfiction? I've had a weird thing since the pandemic that I'm only reading film biographies and oral histories and things like that. My um, fiction brain's just kind of gone, which yeah. is kind of concerning. Well, um, I do read a lot of fiction because I am trying to write fiction. Um, and so I like to know what other people are doing a uh, hundred years ago as well as now. <laughs> uh, but I, I read a lot of biographies and histories. Um, a certain amount of uh, literary criticism. Yeah, I, said, I do read a lot of biographies about particularly about uh, artists and writers okay i think we're good hal all right Stephen. well thank you very much yeah you've been very generous with your time i appreciate it all right then
Take care. That was me and Hal Hartley. That Pixies video I mentioned was Valoria. Check that out on YouTube. That's in my top three favorite Pixies song of all time. And the Hal Hartley film I thought was on a boat was Where to Land. Okay, thanks for listening. Thanks to everyone who sent us nice messages asking when the pod is coming back. I took a holiday, but now we are back and recording thank you to my podcast engineer ewan henselwood joshua eustace aka telephone tel aviv for our beautiful music and i will talk to you soon bye